Osiris. The following program is brought to you by Osiris Media. This is your host, Neil the Night Holler. And direct from New Orleans, it's time for Trick Bag, your ultimate destination for the heppest tracks ever waxed. From Blue Monday to Saturday Night Fish Fry, from early in the morning till the midnight hour. For rhythm and blues and rock and roll, this is the place to feed your soul. So let's get ready for some sweet musical treats as we open up the Trick Bag. Hello again, folks. This is your host, Neil the Night Howler. Once again, I've got something really special for you tonight, especially if you're a lover of deep R&B and soul music. We'll look into the life and career of Cena Fletcher, who released a handful of singles between 1968 and 1970 using the pseudonym Mary Jane Hooper. Her recordings were made in New Orleans, produced by Eddie Bowe, and released on Al Scramuza's Power and Power Pack labels. In more recent decades, her records have become highly sought after by collectors around the world. A CD release of Mary Jane's 60s and 70s material hit the market in 1997 and included several previously unreleased tracks. Die-hard R&B and soul fans speculated about the whereabouts of Mary Jane for many years. I managed to get in touch with her back in 2016. We had great rapport right away, and she was gracious enough to let me interview her for my radio program on WWOZ in New Orleans. And now I'm digging out that interview for this installment of Trick Bag. So here she is, a real soul gem, and a collector's favorite, Miss Cena Fletcher, better known as Mary Jane Hooper. You're talking with Cena Fletcher, uh, known professionally, musically as Mary Jane Hooper. So thanks so much for spending some time with me. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh-huh. been a long time. First for me, for many, many years now. Yeah, and uh, so about how long has it been since you put out a, a recording, a commercial recording? Oh, goodness. Um, commercial recording, probably going back to... The 70s? Yeah. Yeah, I would say late 60s, 70s. You know, back in the day when uh, I did so much material with um, Eddie Bo, uh, producer, arranger, extraordinaire, composer, writer, you name it, jack of all trades. May he rest in peace. Um, And uh, that's the last time, you know, that that I really did anything. Musically that I recorded with, uh, insofar as Mary Jane Hooper is concerned, yeah. I've done things beyond that under my real name, but uh, not as far as Mary Jane Hooper. Yeah. So going back to the, those early years, who were some of your influences? You're originally from New Orleans, right? Originally from New Orleans, uh, born in the Lower Nine and uh, Lower Nine Court of New Orleans. Uh, and you know, my father was a minister um, and the late great Reverend John J. Fletcher. He had two churches, one in New Orleans, one in Slidell. My mother was a Xavier grad in music, and um, she was so brilliant, you know, sort of like a concert pianist, but she played in the church. So I sort of grew up as a child 
singing in my father's church. Um, and it was really a family affair because, you know, my mother played the organ and the piano and my dad preached the sermons and I was just a little kid, you know, singing in the choir. And uh, But coming up, you know, I loved the music of, you know, who didn't love Aretha Franklin? You know, the Queen of Soul. Aretha Franklin, um, Gladys Knight, you know, and I mean, I loved male artists too, right. but as far as like those that I really was, you know, admired and loved their voices... Um, I would say Aretha Franklin, number one. I love Gladys Knight. I love just the soulful, you know, sound that they continually projected right. in their music. Right. And I'm sure you listen to a lot of gospel, too. Well, yeah, you know, I, I sang more gospel yeah, than yeah. I listened to, really, yeah. you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I can't say, you know, my mother, probably if I had to pick a favorite gospel singer, it would be Mahalia Jackson. Okay. You know, I listened to a lot of Mahalia Jackson uh-huh. because that was my mother's favorite gospel singer. You know, and uh, did your mother do any recording? My mother did not. Mm-hmm. You know, she was a brilliant pianist, but um, she she sang, you know, not professionally. That wasn't her thing. Her thing was really playing music, teaching music. Um, she taught us to play myself my younger brother who's um, now deceased but he was the one that really took to the the music end of it as far as playing an instrument and um, but you know she bugged him a lot he bugged her a lot about that he was just uh, uh, I've worked with a lot of brilliant musicians but he was uh, truly the most gifted pianist I'd ever heard so it really runs in the family yeah it was as I said it was a family affair Uh you know for sure so it was a lot of fun Mm -hmm. yeah so when did you first uh, get the idea that you wanted to maybe uh, sing professionally? At birth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, I guess growing up singing and, you know, when you're in a church and you're singing gospel songs and people are telling you all these nice things and you're just a kid and patting on the back, oh, you have a great voice, you know, blah, 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 and encouraging you in that way, you know, you should think about doing this professionally, you know, that sort of thing, you, you know, that little seed is planted and you start thinking about it and then I would hear um, all these, these, uh, wonderful artist on the radio and you know I guess early on as a young teenager I thought well you know nothing ventured nothing gained right yeah. maybe I should give this a shot but mm-hmm. I had no clue how to go about how to go about doing that and um, ironically you know where we lived you know Fats Domino lived around the corner okay. so to speak on Catherine mm-hmm. Avenue um, he and my mother actually shared the same birth date, mm-hmm. which was February 26th. Um, and so, you know, Eddie Bo lived down there. Lee Dorsey lived down mm-hmm. there, um, whom I didn't know at the time, of course. But, um, you know, so mm-hmm. you, you, you were surrounded by, you know, music was groups, yeah. very, mm-hmm. you know, very, very important in my life. And so at a young age, I decided, you know, what, what do I need to do um, in order to for the next step, you know, to get started. And I uh, talked to my dad about it, and of course he was, as far as like, oh no, you know, if you want to do gospel, that's one thing, but if you're talking about doing, you know, rock and roll or soul or R&B, no, 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 you know. So um, I kind of, you know, asked around and inquired around and found out who was who at the time yeah. in the music business, and um, that's what led me to Alan Tuesday. And about what age were you at this point? Oh, gosh. Um, maybe 
15, you know, somewhere, approaching 15, maybe real young. And um, I got up the nerve, and I remember catching the boss to go to his uh, studio, which was, I can't remember the name of the street. I want to say it might be St. Phillips. I can't remember exactly. But he was in business with Marshall Seahorn and um, doing an audition for him. And um, I sang this song, and he played the piano. And he just paid me this huge compliment by yeah. saying that he had written this particular song uh, for Gene Knight at the time. And he said, you know, um, if he had heard me sing the song beforehand, he would have let me do the song. Yeah. So yeah. that's how, you know, that's how you know, someone of that caliber yeah. um, um, thinking that I had, a, you know, a possibilities. Yeah. You know that young, encouragement. right? It, it definitely encouraged me to mm -hmm. want to pursue, you know, pursue a career in singing. Yeah. Do you remember the song? I wish I could, yeah. but uh, I really don't remember. I've tried and tried. What was that song? Mm -hmm. You know, but I can't, I can't remember what it was at this time, unfortunately. So, so but, what happened from that? Point? Well, from that point, um, you know, Alan suggested, with my parents' consent, of course, that I would be able to, um, you know do some studio things, you know, just to kind of teach me, break me in, get me to know a little bit what it feels like to be in the studio and to do some background. So um, I began to work with, in the studio, with him doing background, you know, for various artists. And then I was introduced to two fabulous ladies, uh, Inez Cheatham and um, Mercedes Morris. And uh, who really helped me a lot, um, and uh, we just we just really jived well. Our voices, we practiced a lot, we rehearsed a lot on our own. I mean, it wasn't just you know, and um, we developed this sound that became in demand for some reason for people. You know, this sound that. Everybody said, oh, no, we want them. And so we're like, well, we're in demand. So, you know, we're hot. So, you know, we better come up with a name for ourselves, you know. So we came up with this name called the Triple Souls. And um, and then I remember there was a magazine. Uh, I think it was Data Magazine. I'm not sure if it's still around or not. But Data Magazine, um, who uh, did an article on us. I'd love to find that if anybody out there has that. I'd love to have it. And uh, on the Triple Souls. And so we, we, we would be in studio a lot. And we were doing... A lot of the the background songs for all of the artists that uh, his uh, he and uh, Marshall were producing. Yeah. Do you remember some of the records? I don't remember the records. I mean, the, the artists were. I mean, it was just so much. You know, yeah. Johnny Adams. I remember. Um, I'm trying to think. Um, I can't remember if it was Gene Knight. Uh, probably the girls remember better than me since okay. they stayed in the business, but it was just many different artists that, you know, we would do a background for. And then that continued on and I was working with Eddie Bo as well, mm -hmm. you know, with some of the artists that mm -hmm. he was producing. Oh, let me love again. I, I said I Sweet she is, oh yeah. Oh baby, her lips. You get that? Her lips. 
know what's the matter, baby. But girl, girl, release me. If you don't want me, if you're just trying to use me, why don't you just, why don't you just, why don't you just let me go? Maybe you didn't hear what I said at that time, baby. I want to say it one more time. Triple Souls just on your own? No, we did not record as a group. Um, we basically did background. And um, and then, of course, uh, you know, kind of got to a point where I felt I was ready for the big time. Uh-huh. You know, you know, 15 and knows everything, right? Yes. So I kind of felt that I was ready for the big time. And Alan would say to me, no, lady, I don't think that you're quite ready for the yeah. yet. <laughs> that <laughs> soft voice that uh-huh. he had. Um, and um, I thought that I was. Yeah. So I, I began to kind of, you know, look for other opportunities. And uh, in doing that, that's when I um, hooked up with, you know, Eddie Bow. And, um, you know, as I said, we continued on as the Triple Souls doing work. Because Cosmo was like, back in the day, you know, that was that was the place you yeah. went. That was uh-huh. it. You know, everybody went there. So, um, you know, you, you had an opportunity to run into a lot of different people right. and uh, that's what we did you know so we I started working with him and um, you know he thought I had a, a good voice and wanted to you know to wanted what I wanted which mm-hmm. was to, to do some single material on me you know young and really not knowing young and green I guess you would mm-hmm. say not knowing anything about the business side mm-hmm. and I you know I just sort of really trusted you know these people mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was um, naive um, in some way because I, in a lot of ways, you know, first of all, I was young. I didn't know the business. I didn't know what you were supposed to know, you know. And I really didn't have anybody watching my back. And so I thought, you know, I just trusted people because that's how I grew up. Um, Believing and having confidence and faith in people until Mm -hmm. they give you reason to believe otherwise. This is Neil the Night Holler, and you're in tune to Trick Bag, direct from New Orleans. We're listening to an interview with the great New Orleans soul singer, Mary Jane Hooper, who laid down some incredible soul recordings between 1968 and 1970. She's been sharing some memories about her upbringing in New Orleans and her early career as a backup singer. She'll pick things up now with the story of what led to her solo career. So, meeting Eddie Bo, that's what led to... uh your solo recording? That's what led to the solo recordings. And, and uh, you know, an, an interesting story really is about the whole Mary Jane Hooper uh-huh. name I'm thing, you know, you. because, um, you know, I remember we were in studio and at the time um, we were going to do this song 
it was going to be a you know a soul version of Jeannie C. Riley's How Harper Valley PTA, and um, I couldn't do it. They wanted me to do it, but I couldn't do it because you know I was still under this contract. So um, in order, you know, to break, I was in the process of trying to break this, get out of this contract mm-hmm. that the, I had. The contract with the Triple Souls? Or? No, not okay. with the Triple Souls. We never had a okay. contract, but the contract that I had with Alan and Marshall. And so. Um, my guitar player then, and I have to give a shout out, you know, to him, George Plummer, he's still around playing, um, ran into him not too long ago, but um, he, you know, we were like, well, you know, we just have to come up with this bogus name until we get all this legal stuff out of the way. So um, he really came up with the name, Mary Jane, um, and who back in that time stood for you really hoop, you know, that was a slang, you right. really can sing. Mary Jane was you know, a slang for marijuana. Mm-hmm. So, Mary Jane Hooper. And um, that's that's how that name evolved. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been many stories floating around about why that name and how it came about. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's just like that. That's yeah. the story and I'm sticking to yeah. it, you know. That's how it came about. And, um, you know, we didn't think when that name came about, it was for this one song. And we felt, you know, but the song did, you know, well. Mm-hmm. And that's how I acquired that name and and uh, and kept the name
So that tune got a pretty good bit of airplay here in New Orleans. It got some airplay. Did it go, you know, know if it went nationally at all? No, it did not. It, it, it did well locally, I think, and it mm-hmm. may have gone up the eastern coast a little bit just as Teach Me did. Um, but, um, you know, it wasn't, you know, a, a really big hit or anything mm-hmm. like that. So this so. was... Um, did that have anything to do with uh, Alex Ramuz at that recording? Or oh, yeah, definitely. Um, that, I, I, I think, if I remember correctly, that song, um, all of the songs, if I remember correctly, that, that I did with Eddie Bowe, Alex Ramuza, was involved from the production side, you know, of things. I didn't directly deal with Alex Ramuza very much on a business side. Um, You know, Eddie dealt with him on the business side. I basically uh, sang. You know, that's all I ever wanted to do. (laughs) So Eddie was doing all the arranging and a lot of the writing. He was doing the arranging. He he was doing the writing of Mm -hmm. the songs and, you know, pumping them out. That Mm -hmm. was his style to write a lot of material. Uh, He's always pumping out songs. Um, but uh, writing, producing, arranging, selecting all of the musicians, mm-hmm. you know, who would play. Um, I can remember for uh, Teach Me, we had, you know, Fred Kemp, who I think went on to be with uh, Fats Domino's band. Uh, we had, um, uh, what's it, uh, uh, um, oh, Alice Marcellus, who's so well known now, like right. as well, and uh, you know, it was he, he, you know at this time these are all great people. Mm-hmm. These were the best of the best at that time. Mm-hmm. But now that you reflect back on it, yes. I mean, these are just iconic people. Um, mm-hmm. Many of them who were on that particular song, and I think it was. Um, even though I've heard and read different things about it, it was for the time. I think they did a really good job for mm-hmm. what we had, you know, to work with. Um, I was very young, and uh, everything I always sang, you know, I, I sang from my heart, you know, from everything within me. I gave it um, my all. And it that shows in your music. Yeah, and that song was just a, such a beautiful song, mm-hmm. such beautiful words. Um, I mean, lots of times people listen, but they don't really listen, you know. And um, a lot of the things I found that he wrote were um, just very real people could you know really relate you could really relate to it you could get into the moment of of the song
teach me was is that the um, one that got the most airplay? That's the yeah. one definitely that got yeah. the most airplay. Okay. That's the one that really did very very well. That everybody was singing and had an opportunity to do. Had it had the push behind it, I think. Um, it, it had an opportunity to do really, really good things. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the song, I think, that enticed uh, Jerry Wexler, who was then, you know, with uh, Executive VP, I, I think, of Atlantic mm-hmm. Records, who produced Aretha Franklin, to reach out to mm-hmm. Al Scalmuza about me mm-hmm. and want me to... I didn't know these conversations, by the way, were going on, but... Um, wanted to buy out my contract and move me to New York and uh, you know maybe take that song and make it not just a national but international yeah. hit as well as produce me um, by other producers right. who were you know producing people like Aretha Franklin right. so they were apparently in these conversations and then I for some reason I, I happened to be in the offices one day and I happened to answer the phone and uh, it was Jerry Wexler and I had an opportunity to chat with him and he had told me that he had been in conversation with Alan what was going on and that he didn't think that they were going to be able to come to terms and that um, you know if ever I got out of the contract to let him know you know that he would like to move me to New York I was very upset over that because that's how I found out. Yeah. How long of a contract was it? Do you remember? I don't remember how long it was, years. but I knew that I was determined to get out of yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> after that, yeah. you know, what young girl would not want to, you know, be produced by or be involved with somebody who was producing Aretha Franklin, you know? So um, I remember being, you know, very disappointed. Um, again, I was very trusting, very naive, very yeah. disappointed at that time. Uh, but, you know, I was also very young and my parents were not too keen on me, you know, going to New York, um, not knowing anybody, you know, so that was like, no, yeah. <laughs> you know, we don't think so. So how did they react to the record? Well, you know, I mean, they wanted to be supportive of, of you know, my father being a minister was not too keen on all of that, but, you know. But once the records came out, did they kind of warm up to it a little bit? Um, not my no, father so no. much, no. Um, my mother, yeah. yeah, you know, he just, I think he just didn't want me, I think he was just protective and he just didn't want me to be involved with, you know, back, you know, ministers kind of felt everybody in the music business, you know, might be on drugs or there might be, you know, you get involved in drugs, which I never did, or you might, um, you know, get with the wrong crowd or somebody would take advantage of you because you weren't I so that's what he was just being protected. Yeah, exactly. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is Trick Bag with Neil the Nighthawler and we're hearing an interview I did in 2016 with Cena Fletcher, better known in the music world as Mary Jane Hooper. So um, on all of your sessions, it was, it was the same group of musicians? No. No, it varied? No. Sessions? Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, just like, you know, all these different, I mean, Eddie wrote a lot of material, um, a lot of it, um, but he always worked with the musicians. They were always, you know, he hired who was going to play on sessions. You know, a lot of it depended on who might be in town, who might not be in town, who might be available, who we think it was best suited for, you know, that particular song, because... You know, you might go in the studio and 
you know, six, seven o'clock in the evening and five o'clock the next morning, you're still trying to get something down, you know, so it, it's, you know, who had the time, so it was a lot of different variables, it really, I didn't have to, you know, think about so much. And were you recording yeah. live with the band, or did you overdub your voice? It depended on what he felt uh, would work best, you know, there was sometimes I remember being there when certain band members, maybe not the whole band, but certain band members were there. Uh, there was some times that the whole band was there. And there was some times where he would, you know, lay down the music and then I would come in and, you know, lay down. It, it, it depended right. on So that what would be another reason you don't necessarily know who all the musicians were because they may not have been in the session. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, um, I didn't really have a lot of interaction. Hmm honestly with the musicians you know because um, I remember some of them who was you know Walter Wolfman Washington you know who was coming of age so to speak you know who's brilliant great you know and all that and um, he may or may not remember this but he wrote a song about me called Mary Jane you hold the winning hand Mary Jane you hold the winning hand I don't know if he still loves it but um you know, there was some great, great musicians. I mean, people like that, I remember. But then, you know, sometimes you might have somebody... Uh, not everybody was, you know, an Alice Marcellus or, or, or you know, Fred Kemp. You know, um, it, it, you know, it just kind of depended on a lot of variables. But, um, of course, I had some interaction right. with the yeah. musicians. Do you yeah. remember if uh, James Black may have been the drummer or something? Oh, well, yeah. yeah. You know, who could forget James yeah. so Black? He was, he was on some of these recordings. I, he was on a lot of my recordings. Yeah. I mean, once I think Eddie discovered and found James Black, and then before that, Smokey Johnson okay. as well, you know. Um, <clears throat> but, yeah, James Black um, uh, was just a gift. What else can I say? Um, he, to me, was the Jimi Hendrix of drums. Um, he wrote the song Psychadelphia for me, which I personally think is a Broadway show. So if anybody in his family, you know, I would love to. I always felt that song was a Broadway song. I can, I can, I can envision it. Yeah. But James Black was not just on Teach Me. I mean, if you listen, there were so many of the songs that mm -hmm. James Black, um, you know, was playing on. And I mean, he was just, you know, I had a lot of interaction with him because I was just so mesmerized by his gift. You know, he's just, I was a huge fan. And I mean, you know, you just, I think I was so blessed to, to have him as the drummer yeah. on so much of my material. And uh, I mean, this man has a cult following all over the world. Um, and it's just, he's just amazing, amazing to listen to. So yeah, that, that particular song is very special to me because, you know, it was written by him. Especially with you in mind. And with me in uh -huh. mind and that I have something like that, you know, to, to always reflect uh -huh. on.
that wasn't originally released, right? Uh, no, it was not. Uh, it was not. It was um, something that we, you know, we recorded a lot of these things which came out, obviously, on the CD in 97, um, but a lot of those songs were never released. Um, you know, it wasn't a situation of like, you know, um, it may not be as difficult as you might imagine, you know, because Eddie just would write these songs. I mean, he was just constantly writing these songs. And, you know, every day you were uh, just about, you were in studio doing these various songs. Wait, wait. Wait a minute, hold this game. People have always asked me, Mary Jane, how strong is love? Well, I'm going to explain it to you. Love is stronger than Samson.
There's Mary Jane Hooper with That's How Strong Love Is, recorded for Power Records and released as the B-side of Harper Valley PTA. That tune was also picked up by World Pacific Label, who released it in late 1968. In this next segment, Cena talks about her musical endeavors after her Mary Jane Hooper period. We'll also hear some very rare unissued recordings from Cena's personal collection. So when you had your records out, were you gigging a lot during that time? Or? Um, you know, I did a little bit um, mm-hmm. when when the songs would come out. You know, mm-hmm. I did I did some touring with uh, Lee Dorsey yeah. for a while. I did some touring with Eddie Bowe for a while um, as Mary Jane Hooper, and then in later years, you know, I um, did some other things. You know, with other people. Um, but during the Mary Jane Hooper days, um, yeah, I did some touring, you know, during that time, and it was, it was, it was fun. It was neat. Yeah. So, so how did that, uh, th- did that kind of wrap up that the Mary Jane Hooper period? Well, um, you know, after all of this and all of the songs and all of these things, I revert back to the whole Jerry Wexler thing, uh-huh. which kind of stuck in my craw, yeah. and um, I felt, you know. I needed to to move on from it. I just, um, I started thinking about, you know, maybe my father was right, you know, maybe this was not um, the arena, you know, that I want to be in, you know, because there's one part of you and one side of you that feels, you know, I have something that I love to do and I want to share with the world because people seem to enjoy it and you want to make people happy. You want to share that joy with them if you have... Uh, something that uh, other people think is good you know it's hard to say oh you know I'm so this or that but if other people think you know this is really good um, you want to continue to do it but I got to a point where I felt um, there was no there was no future you know I didn't see um, a future you know for it so I, I just decided you know I just need to do something else. And uh, this is how I got away from it and uh, started um, um, actually hooked up with um, another group. This was in the 70s of guys that was already formulated. It was a band uh, called The Q. And um, it was being managed by uh, Otto Gessel, who I mentioned earlier to you. Um, and Char Vance, uh, who is um, a very, you know, ended up being my manager when I actually, you know, heard the band and she thought it was a a good idea for us to, um, I was kind of, you know, on a liaison period to hook up and I thought, well, this might be cool, you know, here's this 15-piece band playing Chicago, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Cold Blood, Lydia Pence, you know, all this stuff, which is totally removed from R&B soul, you know. But I liked, always did like all kinds of music. And it was a 15-piece band, all white, and this one girl who was black. Mwah. You know. And um, it was just a cool thing. And um, they were playing at places like the Ivanhoe, I remember, in the French Quarter. And so it was, people were like, wow, you know, this is, 
really hip, really yeah. cool. Here are these 15 guys, you know, with all the horns and the long hair and, you know, this one, we had four front singers, but this one singer who is the only girl in the band, you know. And I did not use the name Mary Jane Hooper. I used my real name, you know, during that time. Okay. And that was went on for about how many years? Oh, I don't know, a number of years. You know, we toured quite a bit. We we had our own TV show on Channel 6 yeah. of the NBC affiliate. Yeah. Uh, the producing director, Clyde Abercrombie and Paul Yossage were fans, and they would come in here as play and offer us our own show. Pontchartrain Beach was still in play then and so we did a lot of things there in different places and then we hit the road and um and you know so um that was a number of years you know and uh that we did that um and it was a lot of fun we did a lot of clubs all throughout the country and like i said we had our own show for a while uh, for a season on uh on channel six which is a really fun thing yeah, to do it was, so it, it was pretty exciting it was it was just a whole different spin a whole different aspect you know um, I did that for a number of years, and then, you know, there was a time that I also worked with my brother. You know, we did like a quartet kind of thing. It's time you went home, Bill Bailey. Time that you went on home. You got a woman there that bones the whole night long. My brother was really a gifted pianist and the one who he was tragically killed in 2012. Um, but he uh, but played music till the day he died. He was on his way to a gig, you know, when this happened. And remind us of his name? Raymond Fletcher. But he, um, he and I played off and on together for a while. And we played places like the Montagnoli. We might do, you know, like a Billie Holiday set. Or we might do... You know, different kinds of sets, so you it was know. More like a jazz standards, I guess. Yeah, yeah, jazz standards kind yeah. of things. Okay, okay. No, again.
know, I, I, I like to explore uh-huh. and do different things, not just be locked into, you know, locked into one thing, you so know. Pretty versatile, then. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with that from, you know, working at a radio station in the 70s mm-hmm. under my friend who was involved out of Gaston with my music career and a mentor to me, Bob Mitchell, whom I mentioned, uh, who said, hey, call me in his office one day and say, how would you like to do the news? I said, I don't know, sounds like fun, you know, I'm game, I'll try it. And uh, I started doing the news and I think it started out where I was doing um, afternoon and then midday and yeah. then morning news. Um, and uh, I actually, believe it or not, broke the story in New Orleans of Elvis's death. The reason was wrong, but he was dead. But the, the original reason that came across that Elvis had died, it said the king of rock and roll is dead, was colon cancer, which was wrong, as we all know. But he was dead. So I remember breaking that story. That story. That's my claim to fame, yeah. you know. On, you know. But, uh, but I did the news. I worked there for nine years. And I, I did the news, and I had my own show. Um... Uh, you know, where I interviewed people who were coming into the city to then the Blue Room and other, you know, I remember Ben Johnson, who was like a country and western star, and I remember Jimmy Carter's mother I interviewed, and uh, just, you know, any celebrities who would come into the city. So, and you were saying uh, earlier, Muhammad Ali, too. Muhammad Ali, Muhammad Ali, um, when he fought, I think it was Leon Spinks. Um, I got to, I wasn't the lead on that, but the gentleman, I can't remember his name, forgive me, but he was a sports announcer at the time on TV and radio, and um, he was doing the lead on it, but we were doing a a Louisiana network thing uh, from our offices at WTIX, and I remember Muhammad Ali walking in with, uh, and I had my little son with me, and uh, he walked in with his wife and his entourage, and uh, looked at me and I was just in awe of him and uh, he said he picked up my son and said oh you mind if I take him with me mama mm-hmm. and I said no <laughs> so he did he put him on his lap and then the in, went in the room and um, you know they did the interview and everything like that it was on the 10 o'clock news that yeah. night and my son was excited because he was on the news so you know I got to meet a lot of a lot of really just interesting really really great people so I did that for a while and then I um I um took a liaison and then I for a while and then I ended up working um at an ad agency advertising agency where I became uh, vice president of the ad agency and um, and corporate controller as well. So that was a fun thing because I um, kind of you know ran things uh, for the president of the company and you know hired people and trained them to. We were a small agency, you know, to you name it, you know, the creative side as well, you know, when needed. Yeah. So um, I did that for a number of years, fifteen mm-hmm. years. You know, it's been interesting. Everybody keeps telling me I should write a book because I've done all these different things. And then I went to work um, uh, for Cox Communications, um, where I ended. That's where I actually retired from there for 15 years as advertising, advertising side, not the cable side of things. So, yeah. So that was. um, So yeah, I mean, you know, the music business. You know, um, they say never look back, right? Well, you know, I mean, sometimes, you know, my son will say to me, you know, Mom, do you ever think about 
what might have happened mm-hmm. had you saved me. And so you know what, I really don't have any regrets. I mm-hmm. had the opportunity to go back if I wanted to. Um, you know, I've always had that opportunity if I wanted to, you know, but life takes its twists and turns. Mm-hmm. And uh, I always in the back of me said, well, you know, maybe one day, um, there's a lot of good people out there in the music yeah. business too, you know, yeah. so I just have to hook up with those yeah. people. Um, but, you know, you don't realize, you start doing something else and you think this is going to be for a little while. Yeah. And before you know it, five years yeah. have gone by, and before uh-huh. you know it, ten years, and you're, yeah. you're, you're into a different phase. You know, it takes you different places, mm-hmm. you know, in your life. And so that's, that's kind of yeah. what happened. This is your host, Neil the Nighthawler, and it's Trick Bag, direct from New Orleans. On this installment, we're hearing a 2016 interview with Cena Fletcher, better known to soul and R&B fans as Mary Jane Hooper. In this next segment, we'll hear Cena reflect some more on her life and career, and we'll also hear some more rare, unreleased recordings. So when your uh, original contract as Mary Jane Hooper expired, were you tempted to call Jerry Wexler? Um, I, you know, I actually thought about it. I mean, I, like I said, my life took different directions mm-hmm. until I got the phone call in 97 from Al Scamuza that he had cut this deal with the gentleman in New York and that I would be hearing from this gentleman uh, who wanted to do the right thing by me. Um, but, and I did hear from him. But um, we, you know, nothing ever, it was, it just kind of reminded me of what I walked away from because nothing ever came of it. You know, I, I got an attorney involved and, you know, we came up, you know, we think this is, this is fine, this is fair, you know, what they sent and sent it back, but it was never executed on their end. So it was like you never apparently had intended to do the right thing. Why even bother? Why even reach out to me if you're not going to do the right? It's a waste of my time, you know. And this is what happens to, you know, as I understand it, um, a lot of artists. I know that this type of thing was going on with Willie T. He was a good Uh, friend of mine. He was a very good friend of mine, and he was very upset over that happening with me and offered assistance because he said the same thing had happened to him. Um, I, when I last saw Alan, I was backstage with him in his trailer. Um, and I'm so glad I have a wonderful picture of me yeah. and I too of that. Um, you know, our Eddie backstage with him, mm-hmm. you know, and Dr. John, I remember, um, an international photographer, and the two of them placing me in the center and I'm going, these people don't know who I am. And they're like, yes, they do. And, you know, it's like all these 22 photographers. I'm like, I never did see the picture, so I don't know. But, um, you know, all of these people telling me, you know, this is this is what happens. And it's an unfortunate thing. You know, it's an unfortunate thing. Um, but that's, that's the world um, that I guess were cre- was created by some, not by all. But we do live in a different society today. We live in a different world where people can put things on YouTube or iTunes or, you know, whatever. I mean, there's other outlets uh, to bypass what might be considered uh, the norm at one time, you know. So, you never know. So, were you uh, at all surprised by 
about the resurgence and uh, popularity of some of these uh, R&B and soul recordings? I was. I was pleasantly. Um, not just for me as Mary Jane Hooper, but um, for all artists. Yeah. It, it's, it's wonderful to see, um, especially younger people, have an appreciation uh, for music not of their time. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. um, it, it really is, is very, very rewarding. And um, I, you know, I was told, I remember by Alan, um, that he said, you know, if I were to go to Europe or Asia, and this is at the time, you know, when the CD was released, and this previously unreleased material, and he said, if you were to go to Europe or Asia and you would get off a plane, and they would know who you were, you would be mobbed. And I was like, what? You're kidding. And he said, no. He said, that's how popular yeah. your music is. I had no clue of that, you know, because I wasn't touring, you know. I wasn't singing. I wasn't, you know, involved. In, and uh, I, I had no idea. I had not honestly even Googled. Mary Jane uh -huh. Hooper in years and a friend of mine said have you ever Google your name and I was like no why would I want to do that uh -huh. and um, when I did you know I realized all this stuff was out there on the internet uh, there was this group in New York uh, the Danelles or Danettes or something like that of these girls on stage in New York on YouTube singing my stuff. Yeah. And when I say my stuff, I mean obviously written by Eddie Bo, mm -hmm. but made popular by me yeah. and my voice uh, by Mary Jane Hooper singing mm -hmm. that. And I was like, wow. And I'm seeing all these things that were being written. And, yeah. and what was especially funny was to read that Inez Cheatham and I were one and the same. Oh, and yeah. what's really funny about that is the fact that they've got Mary Jane Hooper and Cena Fletcher in the same paragraph. And so obviously I read that I was dead. How can I, you know, I mean, if anybody had bothered to look, right? Um, and that Inez and I were the same person. And then it says later on that it was disputed by Eddie Bo that I assure you that they are not. But people were insisting that it was. And obviously it's not, you know. Yeah. And she's, are they... Uh both of the other uh, triple souls are still around? Yeah, as far as I know. I mean, I haven't, I really, I would love to reconnect with those girls. You know, I probably, you know, we're, everybody's so busy all the time, but right. we probably should try to just, you know, just reconnect and catch up on old times. They can probably, they're much more astute than I am as far as, you know, the history of things, and uh, they could probably bring me up to speed on, on a lot of stuff, you know, but... Uh, yeah, you just, you know, for whatever reason, no reason other than, you know, you just, your lives go in different directions and uh, and you get busy living it, you know, and so you just you just lose touch with people. So is, is music something that you think you may still be open to getting back into, maybe performing at some point? Or? I don't know. I don't know if there's such a thing that, uh, you know, people keep encouraging me to do that and I'm like, well, you know... I don't know. I mean, it's I'm I'm getting up there now, and uh, I, I am thankful for the fact, though, that it used to be, you know, in the old days that when you got to be a certain age, I mean, you were alive, but nobody wanted to hear you. But when you when you see some of the let's take the Eagles for example, you know, being separated for 14 years and getting back together, and you know, and all that, I was a fan of that. I was a fan of all kinds of music, you know. So you know, you never know. 
you know, never say never. You know, I've been uh, thinking about, you know, possibly doing something that would be like a Christmas CD, a gospel CD. Um, I'm interested in literature, so I've been trying to write a children's book about a dog that I rescued because I, my interests are also animals. You know, I'm somewhat of an animal advocate, so I rescued this dog that I had for three years before he died. So. I'm calling the book Buster the General Giant because that's what I called him. So, you know, I have many different facets to my life. But um, where music is concerned, um, yeah, I mean, you know, never say never. As they say, you never know. You know what you might do. But um, I've been thinking about it. So, it's, it's and like we were talking, there's still a lot of people who uh, appreciate that music. Yeah, and definitely be yeah. and um, I, I ran across, um, I have uh, some music that was um, that was done by my brother and I in studio back when uh, Otto Gessel and Char Vance took my brother and I into the studio, thank goodness, and uh, recorded some of the material. This is not original material, but you know the our renditions, if you will, of of those songs. I'm so glad to have that. So that was actually, so she, after God knows how many years, um, I ran across it and she said, oh, bring it to me. And I did. And she is, uh, she uh, is now um, president of Focus Worldwide, which is a religious worldwide network uh, that was originated and started by Archbishop Philip Hannon. And now she's president of, she is his successor. And she said, let me, let me, you know, Try to see what we can do. It was a cassette tape. Yeah. Okay, that's how old it was. And uh, so she took it with her producers and editors, and they were very good at uh, trying to work with it as best they could um, because it was not mixed or anything like yeah. that. So, what we're trying to do now is see if I may not have the master of that because I have a box of tapes. And I've got to find an old, like, Akai reel-to-reel mm-hmm. or something. Um, it's a box of tapes that I have to go through and um, listen to uh, that I didn't even know I had. So, who knows what jewels might not be right. in that you box, that right? Yeah. yeah, you never know. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, just like I ran across that tape that I didn't really realize that I had. And, and a couple of songs that uh, Willie T 
had written for me as well that we went into uh, the studio and did and I believe this was done at Studio in the Country. His writing, his music, his style uh, was so different, very gifted. Uh -huh. uh, he was like a brother to me. And, um, you know, we talked about all kinds of things. And, uh, you know, um, when he, when Willie had come back, I remember from California, I believe it was, many years ago, back, it was back in the 70s because I was doing radio at that time. Um, and he said, I, you know, I was walking down the street on Coronado Mud Street and he was like riding down his like, pulled over and said, I've been trying to find you, you know, he had cut this deal and he wanted to do some, produce me to do uh -huh. some things, so I said, yeah, let's do it, so yeah. we, we did some things. And that's um, never been released? No, it's never been released, I, I, um, I'm not like I'm saying. I, I I've got to find the time. I've got to find the right a real girl first of all. So once I find that, and I can listen to these tapes and see yeah. what's on there. Some of them could be. I'm sure that some of them could be. Perhaps maybe uh, some of my old radio shows. Yeah. Uh, I also have some old one-ish tapes, which may be the TV show yeah. that we had done, or maybe filming me on stage yeah. or something. Mm -hmm. You know, so. I've just, it's just finding the time for me, I, you know, um, I've got to find the time to be able to, to delve into all of that. It's a showcase on the great New Orleans soul singer Mary Jane Hooper on tonight's edition of Trick Bag. This is your host, Neil the Nighthaller. I've got one last segment before closing the show. We'll start it off with Mary Jane sharing a great story about something that happened to her in Waldenburg Park in New Orleans in recent years. Yeah, it was a really funny story about um, me going to Waldenburg Park mm -hmm. to meet some friends. And as I'm walking out to meet them for a festival that was being held out there, um, there, was, there was this rock climbing thing. You know, mm -hmm. she walked in and by the, what was it, aquarium. And there was a young man operating that and one of my songs was playing so naturally as I'm walking up you know I hear that uh -huh. and so I'm like hmm so I walk over there and uh, he's walk, working the thing and I said oh and I started talking to him about the rock climbing thing and then I said well that's some interesting music that you're playing he's like yeah that's Mary Jane Hooper well he didn't know it was me uh -huh. and I said really who's Mary Jane Hooper uh -huh. and he says well um are you from New Orleans and I said yeah why? And he said, well, I'm, he was from New Jersey. Uh -huh. And he said, but you're from New Orleans and you don't know who Mary Jane Hooper is. And I said, no. <laughs> you know, so he starts telling me about me and it just really blew my mind. Uh -huh. And I never did tell him who I was, uh -huh. 
because I figured I'd get hung up for a very long time and my friends were still waiting for me. But, you know, it, it just kind of made me think because he was 22 years old. He's from New Jersey. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier about, you know, young people having an appreciation, but, you know, it, that was a long time ago. And for somebody 22 years old to be... Um, playing my music yeah. and to you know, know to know about it yeah to know, know about, about it how it. did you learn yeah. about it when, you yeah. know it wasn't like you know mm-hmm. Michael Jackson or you know mm-hmm. or household name mm-hmm. you know what that's most intriguing when you run into a situation like that yeah. Yeah. somebody you know especially when they're when they're young mm-hmm. you know that young right. you know and uh, that they're really that much into into you know that that kind of music yeah. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Obviously, so, yeah, it yeah. seems like the majority of people who do know about that music now, especially the more obscure tracks, so tend to be younger people. As people that are that were around in that era, don't necessarily know as much. I know, as and that is so interesting. Yeah. That is so intriguing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, that there seems to be somewhat of a resurgence mm-hmm. uh, of interest yeah. um, because I think that we have wonderful talent coming out of this city and um, I've always been appreciative that they are appreciated for what for what they do you know it, it's a gift um, and that they you know go out there and give it their all every time they take the stage you know so I think it's about time I've long felt that New Orleans gifted musicians um, don't get they're just a do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we have the big concerts and the festivals like the Jazz Festival, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. But um, we have we have some amazingly talented people mm-hmm. that uh, that come out of, you know, out of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they deserve all the accolades mm-hmm. that, they, that they can get. Mm-hmm. So, there, so there's definitely a market for this music. So I know you'd make a lot yeah. of people happy if you decided to start performing again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would be it would be an interesting thing for me <laughs> to do at this point in my life, and I'm sure it would be interesting, uh, you know, for people to see. It would be interesting to see what would happen, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So. Do you uh, still kind of just sing like around the house, that kind of thing? Oh yeah, you know. I mean, I I do. I sing. Mm-hmm. You know, I try to. Um, I need to do it a lot more diligently mm-hmm. to really get my voice in the shape that I know it would need to be to actually go into a studio and record. Mm-hmm. But you know, I I love you know to sing the songs that I like, mm-hmm. you know, and the music that I like. So that's always a fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we've uh, we've covered quite a bit. Yeah. Covered pretty much your, your whole career and your life. So yeah. thanks so much for uh, and, sharing. And how your long? Time. In a very short period of time to cover the whole life. But yeah, yeah, a lot of information. Yeah, it's it's really been a pleasure to, to talk with you. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a long time. It's a first, uh-huh. you know, for me because I I couldn't tell you when I've last done an interview for Mary Jane Hooper. It's mm-hmm. been a very very a very long time. So I'll be. Um, it was a pleasure for me as well, and I'll be interested to hear what your listeners have to say. Well, I'm sure you'll get a, a warm response. Uh, I know it will excite a lot of people. So thanks Good. so much. I appreciate it. It's, it's an honor that it's going to be broadcast on my program. So thanks so much. Well, I'm happy to do it. All Thank right, you. Then. Thank you. I hope we meet again soon. I hope so too. It's only human to get a little mixed up. Of a life, little game.
does it for tonight's edition of Trick Bag. I remember how thrilled I was to have the opportunity to interview and eventually befriend Cena back in 2016, and it was great to revisit that interview for this episode. Cena is still living in the New Orleans area and doing just great these days. She certainly made some incredible recordings, and hopefully one day we'll get the chance to hear Cena sing once again. I'm your host, Neil the Nighthawler, and I hope you'll join me for the next edition of Trick Bag, direct from New Orleans. Good night, everybody. Trick Bag is hosted and produced by yours truly, Neil Pelligrin. Executive produced by Kirsten Cluthy and Adam Kaplan in partnership with EAC Productions with audio production by Matt Dwyer. If you like what you just heard, please rate and review us and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or any of your other favorite podcast platforms. Osiris.